But we are delighted to have you here. Welcome to the first in our Agora conversations. Agora is Elim's Public Theology, Justice and Pastoral Ethics Task Force. And over the course of this week over ELS 2022, we are going to be grappling with some of the big issues that we're facing in the world. Issues that affect us and issues that affect our churches as well. And so we're kicking off Agora Conversations today with a conversation about sexuality. Now, I don't need to tell you that this is a topic that can be a bit of a minefield. And for many of us, we're leading people who have lots of views on this topic, uh, as well as views on what we should be doing and saying as churches on this. And so we wanted to take some time today to be able to explore how we respond pastorally, how we support people, uh, and how we speak confidently about what can be a challenging issue. And so we're going to have a panel discussion. Malcolm's going to be bringing a word. And there is opportunity towards the end for a Q&A as well. And so on the screen, you'll see details of how you can ask some questions on Slido. So you've got a phone, you can use the QR code, or you can go straight onto the website or Google Slido and enter into the number. And you can just post your question, and then we will try and get through some questions towards the end as part of our panel. So let me pray, and then I'm going to hand over to Malcolm Duncan. Lord, thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you help guide us through what can be challenging conversations. Holy Spirit, would you help us to speak and to listen with love and grace and truth. Thank you for your guidance and for your wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Over to Malcolm. Thank you so much, Catherine, and good afternoon. Let me add my good afternoon to you. It's really wonderful to see you all. I've been a pastor for over 30 years, and in the last 10 or 15 of them, it is undoubtedly true for me, and probably for most of you that are engaged in pastoral ministry in one way or another, that the question of human identity, uh, particularly around sexuality and gender, is a pressing pastoral question. And what we want to do in our conversations here, uh, enabled by Agora, which we'll be saying more about in the conference floor, is help you to think pastorally about some of the questions that we're going to be addressing. This first session is looking at the question of human sexuality and gender. I'm not going to set out a theological treatise on that because I, I think that most of you will probably be familiar with the theological journey around it. But what I want to do is try and help you um, understand the kind of pathways through it. And then I'm going to invite our Director of Ministry, Stuart Blount, and Becky Nichols, who's one of the lead pastors in Luton Christian Fellowship, and Dave Newton, who leads the training arm of Elam's ministry, to reflect on what they think is the most pressing issue, or the most pressing issues around this um, subject. And then we'll open it up for conversation. Right now, I am walking with 18 gay men and women. And I'm trying to help them work out what they are going to do in response to the question of their sexuality. All of them confess as Christians. I'm also on a journey with half a dozen people who are exploring gender issues. Some have transitioned and had surgical intervention, 
and come to faith. Some are Christians that are trying to work out what they do with that issue. And each of them is on a different spot on their journey around this. So the, the Elam Pentecostal position flows from our understanding of Scripture. But within the Elam movement, there would be a, a broader range of understanding of how to deal with the issues of sexuality and gender. So rather than talk about an Elam position, and we'll talk more about what that might mean from the conference floor, because we're going to begin to be exploring that over the next 12 months, and what it means, I think what I want to do is just share with you what I am doing currently, how I am trying to engage with this as a pastor, and then open it up for the further conversation, and we'll see where we go with it. I'm not going to give you all the answers that you want. I'm not going to be the guru that has all of the kind of responses that you need, but hopefully a little bit of my journey might help you. I also speak into this issue on behalf of organizations like Spring Harvest and the Evangelical Alliance and in other public theology contexts around the world. So briefly, I think that there are, there, first of all, we must be careful to, to differentiate the issues of gender and sexuality. They're not the same thing. And there are different responses to issues of gender that there might be to issues of sexuality. And even within the LGBTQI plus communities, the inclusion of gender and transgender issues is becoming more of a controversial issue. So there are splinter groups emerging within the LGBTQI plus community that want to take the T out of that and want to talk about um, sexuality and gender as two separate issues. So be careful that you don't assume that you can lump them all together. That is not the case at all. My approach to both is when somebody comes to me, the most recent being about four, four months ago, somebody came to me and said, Pastor, can I have a conversation with you? I said, of course. They sat down in my office, brokenhearted, and they said, I've never said this to anybody before, but I'm same-sex attracted. That moment is a profoundly important one. And what you do with that information is very, very, very important. And my response in that case is the same as my response would be in all cases. So first of all, I said, thank you for having the courage to speak with me. Secondly, I want to assure you that nothing will be divulged from this space unless it is a child protection or a legal issue. And thirdly, I want you to know this doesn't change how I feel about you. You are still, in this case, my brother in Christ. And it doesn't change one part of my approach to you, one part of my understanding of you, or one part of my valuing of who you are. That takes some time for them to then process. Because very often an individual is in a petrified state at that point. In this case... This individual said to me, I know my dad, and he's in his mid-twenties, I know my dad will reject me when I tell him, and I'm not going to tell him until I move out of the house. I'm in a situation in that particular set of circumstances where his mum, his dad, the next generation up, all of his siblings and all of his cousins are part of our church, and they're all going to react in different ways when he shares this news with them. When somebody brings that information to me, 
The first thing I say to them is, let me say this, that you are made in the image of God. And in the image of God, all people are made. So you are valuable to him and precious. And I'm very careful. Now, you will disagree with this, some of you, I think. But I am very careful not to tell people what they must think. And I'm very careful not to tell them what they must decide. I don't believe that I have the right to do that. But what I do do is this, whether it's a gender issue or a sexuality issue. I will explain that across the Church of Jesus Christ, there is a wide response to this issue. In some situations, there are those who are Christians who will say that an act of same-sex relationship is permissible before God. In some circumstances, there are those that will say having same-sex attraction itself or gender confusion is a sin. There are those that will say struggling with your gender identity isn't a sin, but doing something about it is. There are those that will say living with same-sex attraction is not a sin, but acting out of that is. Then there are those that will say that when you are living with same-sex attraction, and I'm going to focus on that unless we pick up the question of gender um, in the conversation in a moment or two, There are those that will say to you that if you experience same-sex attraction, the call that God places upon you is a call of celibacy. And you are to adopt a life of celibacy in obedience to God. There are others that will say that um, if you are same-sex attracted or you are gay, then that is something that you must turn away from and be healed of. Now, For the record, so that you know where I stand, in case you're all going to shout at me in a minute, um, my position is a conservative theological one, as is my understanding of Elam's position. But what I say to the individuals in front of me, including this young man last week, with whom I am still walking and all the others, is I would like you to give me permission to meet with you for a few months. And we will explore all of these positions together. And I'm not going to tell you what to think. And I'm not going to tell you what to do. But I will answer your questions as they arise. And as you work out what it is you are going to do in response to this experience or this sense of identity that you have, I will then be able to help you. Now, I know that many of you will disagree with this. But if that individual then says to me, Pastor, I want to enter into an active same-sex relationship What does that mean for me in this church? At that point, I have a duty of theological conviction and of care to explain the position of the church that I am a part of. And that then might mean that they make a decision to move to another church. That is not me fobbing them off. That's not me telling them to walk away. That's me saying, I don't have the right to tell you what to think but I do have a pastoral responsibility to help you think biblically. And their reading of Scripture might be different to mine. Their interpretation of Scripture might be different to mine. But at that point, I am able to say, as an office bearer in the Elam Pentecostal Church, here are my convictions. As someone who believes in our statement of faith, this is what it says. As someone who is committed to a conservative reading of Scripture, this is what this means. Here, in Dundonald Elam, And what I want them then to do is to be able to make decisions that will help them to flourish in Christ, help them to grow and to develop 
And nearly all the time, that has resulted for me in people making a decision that says, actually, I feel safe here. And I feel welcomed here. And I feel loved here. And I want to be part of this fellowship. Our position as a local church is that somebody who is in an active same-sex relationship cannot come into membership. It is also that they cannot come into leadership by dint of that. Now, there actually isn't guidance yet for Elam churches around this. So don't take that as the Elam position, but that is the position that our church takes. And I don't hide behind Elam in that. So I don't say, look, I'm, I'm so sorry, Stuart, but it's, it's not my position, it's Elam's. Take it, up, take it up with the people above me or take it up with the Lord. And I think we need to be careful that whatever position we take, we don't become apologetic for God or for his purposes or for his kingdom. The hardest thing to do for some people is to let somebody make a decision that you disagree with without you becoming some kind of finger pointer at them. I think there is a point at which you must release people to make their own decisions. But I don't think that that has to compromise your integrity. I don't think it has to compromise the integrity of the church. But it does demand an understanding that there are many Christians who read the Bible differently to us. And that there are many people who pastor differently to us. And that we are not the citadel of truth that we somehow often claim that we are. And we need to release people into God's care and God's grace at the same time as being clear about our own convictions and our own beliefs. And it is very hard to sit with somebody whom you have said, why don't you read Matthew Vine's God and the Gay Christian? Because it's a very, very different perspective to the one that most of you would take. And then say, shall we talk about that? Why don't we read the texts and shall we have a conversation about them without telling them what they must believe, but instead helping them to understand what they believe? Our church position is one that says to people, there is a place for you if you are gay in this church. We are sorry for the victimization that has taken place of gay people and of um, people who have a non-cisgender. We're sorry for the way you've been made to feel. But we also have a position rooted in a, a collective understanding of the scriptures that we believe leads to human flourishing. The other thing that we try to do, or I try to do, is avoid labeling people with progressive or welcoming or affirming or conservative or liberal. Because I'm not sure that the positions that are described as affirming and welcoming and open are, are that welcoming, affirming, or open. And I'm not entirely convinced that the positions that are described as conservative and traditional are less open or less welcoming or less affirming. Over my years in ministry, for some reason, this is something that God has brought me back to to minister into again and again and again. But I'm only one pastor. And I only lead a local church like many of you do. And I'm grateful to God for what he says and does in that context. For me, what's the most important thing, which I'm about to ask my colleagues? I think one of my fundamental commitments when I was called to be a pastor is to see people flourish. And my definition of flourishing is not society's definition. And it's not the culture's definition. 
It is a biblical definition. And I want to see people flourish and communities flourish. And when somebody is struggling with their sexuality or their gender, if you're not careful, you can be the person that squashes their hope or destroys their capacity to discover freedom. So it takes careful thinking and consideration. But you must never, please, I'm not telling you what to do, but I'm pleading with you here, never approach a gay man or a gay woman or a transgender person with your fists up. And never approach them as a project. And don't assume that all the gay people in your church are united by their gayness. They might actually hate each other. They might have very different views. See the person first. And find a way of rooting yourself in scripture. And in how you understand it. And how this movement understands it. And then from that position with confidence and humility. Try to help the people in front of you to discover for themselves. What God's word might be saying to them. And how they prosper. Stuart. I'm going to ask you to take this microphone. <laughs> there you go. So the fundamental question for this is being recorded, so for the, for the purposes of the tape. What do you think are the big key issues here? I suppose I bring to this situation a threefold perspective. One is a national perspective. My role as a member of the national leadership team, and as Malcolm said, we have already launched um, a working group to look at some of these, these issues but I also come as part of a local Elim church. And just this past weekend was part of a leaders' gathering, a large leaders' gathering, that was engaging in conversation with the church and has been doing so for a long time about what this means for us as a local church. But folks, I also come to it at a personal level because I have a nephew and a niece who are both in same-sex relationships. And I have to say to you, that had a dramatic effect on me in so many ways. Um, so that I wouldn't ramble, I, I, I kind of think that many same-sex attractive people walk into our churches and they see a moral, ethical and biblical inconsistency in the church in the way we approach sexuality. And they're right. Because we've sometimes lost the ground when we do not challenge cohabitation mm -hmm. and casual sexuality in the way that some churches and church leaders want to challenge same-sex issues and I think they're absolutely right and they have reason to feel somehow aggrieved you know we used to sing a song in Elim that said whosoever will may come but I think that we sometimes have stepped back from that because we're not so comfortable any longer with the whosoever will and that is still the heart of the gospel and I suppose for me Malcolm I live with this tension of understanding how Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. And I think that's one of our greatest tensions. And it's not a tension between theology and pastoral awareness. It's the tension between how we love as we love everybody in our relationships. And I got thinking just recently about what do we mean by the church. And the problem is when we use the term church, we mean very different things. We mean our church building, we mean our church community. But I don't believe any of us have the right to include or exclude anybody from the body of Christ. Our responsibility is the whosoever will. And so I think that the great challenge that we face is how, how hard we want to hold to a moral ground that we believe in, which will be different across every Elim church. And 
our tension as a movement is that we are eclectic in so many kinds of ways. Culturally, the cultural differences in our church reflect into this issue. The, the teaching that comes into our churches, and that's the journey we're going on. Somehow, whenever we come across these issues, I can go back to the 90, late 1980s, mid to late 1980s, where it was about divorce and remarriage. And we've talked about that in some of our working group settings. But what I think we need to do is equally accept one another with grace and truth. We're on a journey. I'm not sure that this journey will get us to a place, a destination, that we're all entirely comfortable with. I can't promise that. Because many of you were here today because not just of what you're thinking and how you're trying to lead, but the experiences you're having with people in your congregations. How are we going to journey as a movement, I think, is one of the great challenges as well. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Um, Stuart, thank you so much. Uh, Becky, yes. same question. Uh, for the three, for, remember, folks, that if you do want to make, ask a question or submit one, use the Slido um, details there. Becky. Yeah, is that, do you want me to stand? Right? Whatever you prefer. prefer. People at the back might not thank, see if you Thank you, you so much for everyone being here as well. I think it's just such a great... You know, testament of why we need to have these conversations. And if you're behind the screen listening, God bless you, because you know it really shows people's pastoral heart mm -hmm. that this is important. And I'm willing to sit on the floor in an aisle or sit behind a screen because I'm that desperate for God's people and you know for us as a church to show God's heart. Um, I'm not um, a very big theologian. I'm not a big reader. That's why I'm really grateful for people like you, Malcolm, in our you know movement because you really help me out with things. Um, and you even help talk to people in my congregation about these issues, which is really helpful. I'm just mainly a mom and a pastor, local church pastor, and uh, I'm raising three kids. And I'm learning a lot. I'm here really because I want to learn. And uh, I'm really conscious of this next generation and that being in the community and being someone that has a microphone every other week that says a lot of stuff, I want to make sure that I'm not saying something that is going to cause someone in my congregation or someone in my kids' generation to walk out the door and go, I think I'm going to take my life. Because I had someone in my church, a really great woman, come to me and say, you know, some of the prayers that we say, some of the flippant comments we make, they actually seriously make people go, I don't know if I want to be here anymore. And we are, we are handling people, and I think that's such a big responsibility. So I'm so grateful for people being here um, to help us with these issues. I think the main issue for me um, in the church is, with tackling these issues, is first, there's just so much division Division and confusion. Um, if we were to get up and say, you know, we're going to accept into membership or baptise or just accept this person in our church that might so happen to have, um, you know, a same-sex attraction or say they're gay or anything like that, we could have a complete divide, split divide of people that want you to completely come all out and be accepting of everything. And then we've got other people on one side that are like, we need to tell them exactly how it is right now. And you can kind of be in the middle going, it seems like it's not appropriate to sit somewhere in the middle anymore or not have a dramatic stance. And I think as a pastor and just as a Christian, I'm not here to bring division. I'm here to bring unity. And that's what the church is here to do. And then secondly, with confusion, we're here to bring clarity. The gospel is 
is the most simple thing. Identity, like identity is the most simple thing, yet it's got so confusing. And I just, I feel like I'm not doing my job properly if I'm not helping bring clarity to the church. And so whenever thinking about these issues, I'm really mindful, like Stuart said, he thinks about his, you know, his niece and his nephew. I'm really quick just to think about my kid. I'm thinking, you know what, one day they could come home and tell me that they identify with something I've never heard of before. I want to make crystal clear and I want to make sure I'm building a culture in my house that says he can come home in any capacity. He knows he's not going to be slung out the door. He knows that there's not going to be any confusion in our house. There's not going to be any division in our house. And I want that to be the exact same in my local church, that people can come through the door and they can come as they are and they know that they're going to be handled with care. That doesn't mean that we tell people everything they want to hear. We're here to keep people safe and pointed to Jesus. And I think, I think that's all I've really got to say, really. Thank you, Thank Becky. You. Dave, as, as director of training, but as someone who also has many years of experience in Youth for Christ mm-hmm. and in a generation that is grappling with this in very, very, very clear ways, what do you think are the big issues that we face? Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest issues, and it's picking up on what Becky was saying, is the polarisation. And I think we need to recognise that this conversation has to be viewed through multiple lenses. So let me just kind of six very, very quick ones. There's a legal lens that we need to look at this through, you know, hiring buildings, what we can or can't say, the whole conversation around conversion therapy, um, who we employ, how we employ. We, we can't step out of the, the, um, the legal lens that we operate in in our world. So there's a legal uh, lens we need to look through. Secondly, there is a pastoral lens. So someone makes a decision or joins your church, um, comes to an alpha group, is same-sex attracted, to to what level can we accept, include, involve um, from attendance through to membership, through to baptism, through to service, through to leadership, that pastoral lens. How do we journey with someone who's genuinely seeking to follow Jesus? And how do we kind of model discipleship in that space? Um, the third one that, that um, Malcolm has alluded to is the theological lens, that there are huge debates and discussions around this. We, and I, I agree with Malcolm not wanting to jump into labels. We, we've got a, a conservative view or understanding or reading of scripture within Elim, and, and that's one that we're holding to. But it doesn't mean we can't have conversations with or explore the bigger theological picture. Um, The fourth one is the personal lens. When this gets presented to you as a pastor, it could be deeply personal to an individual or a family member. It's not an issue to solve. It's a person who is in front of you. So you need to kind of see it sometimes through that lens. Two more. um, uh, Sorry, the um, political political lens. You know, I think it's on Saturday, the um, Franklin Graham missions are starting in Liverpool. We're all very aware of the political conversations that have gone around and, and an agenda, a fierce agenda, actually to, to be quite strong in marginalising the Christian voice and we need to be aware of that. But the one I would cling on to is the missional lens. We've been called to make disciples of all nations. I'm going to change that slightly, all people. There are groups of people who are different to maybe where we stand or what we would believe, and we cannot ignore reaching them with the good news of Jesus. So we can't say, hey, let's ignore. We need to engage missionally. So I would say there's a whole um, view of lenses we need to view the conversation through, and that might just nuance how we approach this conversation. My goddaughter, who is also my niece, is a lesbian. 
and she and her partner um, had um, IVF treatment, and my great-nephew was born nine months ago. His name is Rory, and he's beautiful, and he's not illegitimate, because there's no such thing as an illegitimate child, despite what you may have been told. She asked me to marry them, and I said no. I said no for several reasons. I said no out of personal conviction. I said no out of a faithfulness to my reading of scripture. And I said no because Elam ministers are not permitted. And this is a serious point. Elam ministers are not permitted to carry out same-sex marriages or same-sex blessings. And your buildings are not permitted to be used for such. That's where the guidance stops at the moment. But I didn't hide behind any of those. I said to Lisa, Lisa, I, I can't do this. And she said, would you come to the wedding? I said, yes, I will. So on the 13th of August, I will be there with my niece. Because at the heart of this is a commitment to compassion and truth and a radical belief in the gospel the power of the gospel to bring a transformed life. And that radical transformation does not stop at a particular portal of somebody's life or heart or experience or understanding. And I, I think that, well, I have the privilege, I think it's the privilege of leading this conversation and facilitating it across the next 12 months within the Elam family. And there are going to be voices in there that will challenge each other but I'm so grateful to be part of a movement that wants to have the conversation and doesn't want to have it in sterility. The conversation doesn't mean we're abandoning the Bible. Please don't leave here and say Elam are going to change their position. That's not helpful and it's not the case. But we're, we, we need to have a conversation and we need to listen to each other and see what it looks like to see Christ in someone even when they, we radically disagree with their choices or their lifestyle, I, I wonder whether, on a more general point, the tribalism of most conservative evangelical churches, including the one I'm part of, means that we fail to see that the church can have a mosaic-like beauty. And we can help people find places to flourish and remain faithful to our own convictions. Is that going to be enough? I don't know. Where are these conversations going to end? I have no idea. Because to prejudge those would be to make them futile. But we do need to listen to each other. And we do need to see the person in front of us before we see anything else. You've alluded a couple of times to a working group. Um, somebody's asked the question about, can you talk a little bit more about what the remit of that group is? That working group is, is, um, is made up of a number of people that I've been in conversation with Stuart and Chris Cartwright about, and its, it's aim will be, over the next 12 months, in the first instance, to, um, to explore issues of sexuality and gender and pastoral pathways for those in Elam churches that are seeking to live with, walk alongside, or help people that are facing challenges around their sexuality or their gender. It's not going to present a whole load of things that says we must do this or we must do that. 
And at the moment, there will be an interim set of uh, conclusions brought at next year's conference, we hope. But between now and then, there will be a number of opportunities for people to share thoughts, reflections, papers, Zoom conversations, dialogues. Um, we've only just agreed this in the last month, and then Easter has happened, and spring harvest, and lots of other things. But what we want to do is create as inclusive a framework as possible, to hear as many voices as possible, and then to make sure that the widest part of the movement, which is beautiful, is represented in those conversations and dialogues. Mm. And those findings are then brought back to the NLT first. It's a working, it's what you, those of you that are old enough would remember working committees of conference. It's a working committee of conference that will report back to the national leadership team. And its aim is to find pastoral pathways that can help pastors and local churches walk with people in faithfulness to Elam's convictions in the context of their own local expression of faith. One aspect of that will also be um, a theological conversation which is happening and so the dates of that have been set for the 7th and 8th of February. Um, there's information downstairs about that on the stand but it might be a date worth putting in your diary if you want to engage. Thank you. Um, I want to read this question uh, by words because uh, there's obviously an Elvis fan in the room. The question says, I have hope that Elvis made it to heaven. Uh, is there hope for heaven for those that are caught in a sexual trap? Is there a chance of heaven for gay Christians? Does one of you want to comment about uh, the connection between salvation and sexuality? There is no connection. I, I don't find anywhere in the scripture that tells me there's a connection yeah. between sexuality. Let's not forget our New Testament is the messiest place and is the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And we don't see the resolution to those issues in the New Testament. We see Paul's attempt to resolve complex issues but no resolution. And I think if we think that we're going to get resolution to all these issues... We're deluding ourselves, really. I cannot see, if you want to present any connection in Scripture to sexuality, I see a connection to brokenness and to sin, but my understanding and our understanding movement of the redemptive work of Christ is that the atonement covers for all my sin, past, present, and future. And is the sin that I die in when I lied to my wife the day before I died worse than the sin that somebody who could not get through their struggles mm. and kept slipping into that, mm. is that greater than the sin that I keep slipping mm. into day after day after day and every morning trust God for his grace for that day? My congregation asks me this quite often, as do people in Belfast. <laughs> and, and I have a, a very simple strap line that I use, which will be offensive to some of you. If God does not love me because I am straight, he cannot hate me if I am gay. Mm. It's as simple as that. If God doesn't love me because I am straight, then he cannot hate me if I am gay. Now, I think the, the more profound question is not whether, can you be gay and saved? Yes. Does the ba For me, the issue of sexuality and gender is not actually in the end about sexuality and gender. It's about what we do with the Bible. And whether or not are, if we read the Bible in such a way that says 1 Corinthians 6, for example, points to a clear definition of sexual sin as profoundly problematic. If we read that and then say what the Bible describes as sin, we describe as not sin, then it's not the issue of sexuality that becomes problematic. It's the authority of Scripture and whether we go, we're going to endorse the authority of Scripture or not, and what that means. Now, that is not contradicting anything that Stuart's just said. 
but it is to say that it's actually very problematic because we have to work out first what we do with Scripture, and that's about the lenses and it's about everything else. But you can't ignore that challenge either and pretend that it's not there. Somebody's asked about uh, their youth group. So 27 young people in their youth group, and over 20 of them would hold to a liberal view. How do you communicate the, on these things in love and with grace to our teenagers? I'll start with that. I think it's really important to find out where those young people are coming from. Have those young people professed faith in Jesus Christ and are seeking to walk in a, um, a discipleship and a lordship and a surrender to Jesus? Or have they walked in off the street and have got no understanding of who Jesus is? Because I think you take two very different approaches depending on the decisions that they've made. I think the challenge sometimes with discipleship is that, you know, we... Uh, we've forgotten the lordship aspect of our discipleship. So I surrender and sacrifice and give everything to, to Jesus and who he is and what he stands for. Therefore, his ways um, overcome my ways. And, and therefore, if God is challenging me to something on my reading of scripture, um, is, is, uh, I need to surrender who I am to, to, to his ways. Equally, if, if there's a group of young people who want to come and hang out in our church, who have no understanding of Jesus, but they find us a safe and welcoming place, let's be that self and, safe and welcoming place. So I think it depends a little bit on the percep perception. Is it a discipleship journey or a missional journey? I think though I want to have these conversations, I want to teach our next generation, the current generation that are going, that this is not all we're going to talk about. Because this is everything that they're talking about right now. And I don't want to talk about sexuality more than I'm talking about salvation. And I think just reminding them that there is actually a bigger picture. Um, and there's a great woman that I follow. Her name is Jackie Herry. And she's got a great book called uh, Gay Girl good God. And she talks about how she used to be a stud. I had to read her book to find out what that meant. And um, she said this, she says, I've got people introducing themselves to me as a gay Christian. And she's like, there's no such thing. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian. No, I'm not a female Christian. I'm not, you know, a, a blue Christian. You're a Christian. And I, I just thought that was really helpful. One of the really uncomfortable realities behind a question like that is at some point, all of us who are in leadership of young people, old people, middle-aged people or anything else have to accept that we have for too long allowed our culture to be the discipler mm -hmm. of our congregations. Mm -hmm. What they're watching on television and, and, you know, it's often said that the generation rising has a different view of sexuality. And I, I sometimes wonder if that's because we haven't had the courage to teach human sexuality. We haven't had the bravery to step into this arena and say with confidence... What God describes as a flourishing life looks like this. Mm. And with it comes freedom and hope and joy. And what the culture describes as a human life that flourishes doesn't end up flourishing. So I, I don't, I kind of get angst, I think, when we look at the generation rising behind us and say, what are we going to do about them? It, well, it's our fault. Yeah. It's not their fault that they're getting discipled by Netflix mm. and Hollywood. Mm. That's our job. How do we ensure that we're welcoming without affirming? Because there will be some people who, if you are not affirming, um, you will be assumed to be unwelcoming. Um, and connected to that, another question that asks, some people will come in with an almost militant attitude, uh, wanting you to accept them as they are. Uh, how do we respond to those situations in church? Acceptance and agreement are two different things. And I think one of the great challenges is in a militant end of... Um, people who might want rights in the church. There is a desire that acceptance is not enough. And there does come a point at which you have to say, 
I'm not unlike with my niece. I accept you. And I love you. But I can't agree with you. I, every, I'm going to give this to somebody else. Every, every month since June 2013, when the Equal Marriage Bill was passed, I have had a lawsuit served against me. Every month for almost 10 years because I refuse to marry same-sex couples. And I'm grateful that I have a conscience clause that I've written, that I'm very clear about that. We talked about that many years ago. Um, but it's still painful. And it's just the cost of it, I think. It's a throwaway quote, but it's a quote that actually has some resonance to it. Jeff Lucas once said, until we've been accused of cheap grace, maybe we haven't got anywhere near to understanding grace. Mm -hmm. and, and I just wonder sometimes, in terms of that welcome, you know, it doesn't really matter what other people are saying about us. We need to, before God, have conscience to welcome people into our space. Not changing what we believe, but having that radical welcome into our church and then having a conscience to kind of follow through on what we believe. I think that militancy is in the minority. I think that one of the problems in our culture today is that the media presents the pictures that we believe. I think that the majority of people in our culture who struggle with same-sex attraction or who have found themselves in one sense invariably forced to accept it because there's no other part of life for them are not militant people. And I think that if we believe and respond to everything as if it's a militant approach yeah. upon us, mm. we, we create a greater problem for ourselves, really. Mm. And we need to kick back at the culture a little bit um, and find, just like it is with anybody who comes into our church with all kinds of issues, surely we are the place they should be coming. Mm. Um, you know, go back to what, what you guys have been saying about teaching sexuality, but... It, Surely we would want that to be the case if we're genuinely the church with all those challenges. Mm. You know, and I pastor churches for over 30 years and, you know, and I'm, I'm not out of that picture because I'm having conversations with so many of you guys and girls who are doing that. But if we want to be the church in this generation, surely that's one of the challenges. We have to say that's just our, the challenge for our generation, that we have to say that. And there will be occasions. I had, going back years, I had emails. I didn't know if I was being set up by a local... I remember, I remember having an email that said, you know, so introduce themselves and wanted to know if we welcome you to church. And, and my local pastor had an email like that very recently. I remember just a moment thinking, is this a setup? And I just simply responded and say, hey, you'd be welcome to come to church. And I'd love to have a coffee with you as well and chat to you about your journey of faith. Never heard another thing. And I thought, I've done the wrong thing. I rang John Glass and he just said, great response. That made me feel a lot, lot better. But actually, it was because if we believe that every approach like that is trying to trap us, we're on the defensive. Mm. And so I think that let's, let's trust that sometimes God is leading people to us because we're the people he wants to engage with their life journey. Um, somebody's asked about conversion therapy. Conversion, I, I don't like the name conversion therapy. It's, it's a modern, it's, 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 a rather, it's a rather new definition of something that was called reparative therapy previously. Um, and I think it's a deliberate use of that word because of its religious connotations. Currently in the UK, the legislation is that conversion therapy is not banned, and the United Kingdom government, after lobbying from Elam and from other organisations, they made the decision that they would alter their approach to this. And it does not include prayer ministry. It does not include opening the scriptures together. And it doesn't include 
answering people's questions about their sexuality. And there are even more freedoms within the context of gender identity. Deliberately, as an aside, I said I wasn't going to talk about gender, but promise, I, I promise you, well, I'm convinced I'm right about this. I might not be. In 50 years, when the history of our generation is written, whoever writes it around these issues will be as horrified at the way we have allowed hormone replacement therapy and surgical intervention and gender identity in 12 and 14 year olds mm. as we are when we look back at the use of electro electric shock treatment on gay men and women mm. in the 40s and the 50s. Mm. And the tide is starting to turn on that conversation because this, th these arguments are beginning to eat each other, which is always what happens when there's an unbridled kind of human will and rationality at the top of this tree. In terms of gender treatment and gender therapy, actually, I support a ban on any, ther any intervention in a human being that is coercive, aggressive, manipulative, controlling, or violent. But there is already sufficient legislation in the United Kingdom to prevent all of those interventions. Um, I do not and do not think that, and we as an Elam movement have not supported the banning of prayer. We have not supported the banning of a reading of scripture together. And we have not su supported the banning of a conversation with people when they ask you about their gender identity and ask you to help them. Um, the legislation was going to be such that it could have been retrospectively applied, but fundamentally this is a mess now because um, folk on, on, on an argument that want this all to be legalized um, and every mention of change to be banned um, have, have lost a bit of the argument and are getting very anxious about it now. At the moment, um, there, is, there has not been, this, this legislation has not yet been passed. When it is, Agora and the national leadership team will write to you with guidance and help about it. But at the moment, you are not allowed to be violent. You're not allowed to be aggressive. You're not allowed to be manipulative. You're not allowed to be controlling. You're not allowed to be coercive. And thank God you're not allowed to be those things. But you are allowed to be free to talk about scripture and pray together. Can I ask one final question around uh, unity with other churches and denominations? A couple of people have asked, uh, what's your thoughts on us working with churches that have a very different view to us and even with denominations that might differ from Elim's stance? This is a really interesting question. And I know some pastors have kind of maybe um, non-platform, to use a popular term, uh, fraternities or think, you know, I, I don't want to be in that space because there are other people who have different views to me or pulpit sharing and some of those kind of challenges that, that come... I think my personal view is I want to be in the space and in the conversation and in the dialogue. I posture myself as a learner. It doesn't mean I agree with everybody I have a conversation with, but I don't want to just exclude myself from a conversation. So, so to meet with other ministers who are seeking to make Jesus known in my town or community, to exclude myself from that space is probably not the position I would take. But it doesn't mean that we can't disagree well and, and learn from one another in that space. Um, now, whether I would invite you know, somebody to then come and speak in my church might depend what they're speaking on, um, but, but I think you need to be aware of, of those challenges. But it's a very real challenge, and I know some ministers, particularly Elon ministers, have said, I'm not going to those meetings anymore because um, of, of different views. That's one thought. I think it's a matter of personal consciousness in some areas. That there are some matters that I think are bigger 
and been there really in our context in Birmingham over many years. But I, I think ultimately for those who have been to those of my colleagues in, in ministry, um, it's difficult to comment on that until you know what your setting is and what, what's happening and how virulent that is and how it challenges. So I think it's a matter of personal conscience. Um, I think we've always taken the view when we've trained people for ministry, it is a healthy thing for us as Elim churches to be completely engaged in the Christian community mm. in our town, city, village or whatever. But I recognise, uh, I know there's somebody in the room here who's had to take a very big decision recently to step out of connection with the church movement as a matter of conscience, and I've very much supported that move. Um, and that's taken a lot of courage, and that's put him in a situation where there isn't going to be a ministry doorway immediately. We can try and help that. And I respect that, but I think it's probably a personal conscience thing. We would not give a, an, a, any kind of directive on that because the situation might be different. I think the tone of this conversation, if it could be replicated across this movement... Would be wonderful. It would be now. It doesn't mean that it's easy, but it would be wonderful. Back to the young man that I began with. He has a name, and he has a story, and he has hopes and dreams about the future. He's not just gay. He enjoys certain types of music. He likes certain issues of social justice. He likes particular versions of the Bible. He's deeply committed to the scriptures. He, he loves worship. Don't define someone by this one thing. He said something to me that I'm going to leave you with, which actually is often said to me in these situations and breaks my heart every time. Sobbing, he said to me, this has been my home from the day I was born. And it's literally that for him. I was carried into this church as a baby. And this is the place that until this last few years, I have felt most exposed, most in danger, and most uncertain about whether or not I would be loved. If you are a pastor and somebody says that to you, and it's on your watch that you're trying to change that culture, your heart breaks into a thousand pieces because you want them to know that they are loved and welcomed mm. and at the same time, you have an allegiance to Jesus above and beyond everything else. The two do not contradict each other. Even if you feel as if they do, they don't necessarily contradict each other.